You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. If I haven't met you, my name is Charlie. I'm one of the pastors here with Missio Tempe. We are part of a family of congregations in Mesa and Phoenix. And we also love our children across congregations. And we are going to release the kids right now. If you're in the two, two of the classrooms or the older kids' classroom today, you guys can go with Stephanie Peterson and Nate Hughes in the back. Emily's not out here right now, but it's Emily Hughes' birthday today. She is serving on her birthday. That's the ultimate picture of a servant identity. Uh, so if you see her today, make sure you wish her a happy birthday. 21 today, she just turned. So you are maybe aware of this, uh, maybe you're not, but we have a housing crisis, affordable housing crisis, across our great state, largely in the main cities. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're like me and you bought a house a couple of years ago, at least in Tempe, I thought I spent way too much on a house. Well, now three years later, almost four, the house was worth double what we paid for it then. It's a huge problem, affordable housing, not just in Tempe, but all across our state as there's more and more demand of housing. This isn't just in Arizona, but across our great country. If you talk to 10 people on the street and you were to ask them, how do you solve the affordable housing crisis? They probably would give you 10 different answers. They'll have different approaches for how they're going to solve the problem. It becomes quickly political, not necessarily in a negative way, but it becomes, in a sense, your vision of how, in a sense, to use Christian words, the kingdom were to break through in your midst so that everyone would have access to affordable housing. I bring this up today because as we get further into the Gospels, we're going to look at Jesus' baptism in wilderness today, you're going to see four groups of people littered throughout the Gospels that are going to shape your reading of each of the stories. They're going to often be confused by Jesus, unsure of what to do with Him, because their approaches to how to see the kingdom break through are very different. I want to outline these four approaches because as we go to Jesus' baptism in the wilderness and the stories to come, Jesus is doing something unique with what people were anticipating for him to do. For 400 years, God had been silent and God's people had wondered if he was going to be faithful to his promises. And then these four groups begin to develop saying, this is how the kingdom will break through. This is how the kingdom is going to make itself known in our presence. Here are the four groups. The first group are the Zealots. The second group are the Pharisees. The third are the Sadducees. And the last are the Essenes. Zealots, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. Don't worry, I'll connect us to affordable housing in just a second. The Zealots, they saw the kingdom coming through conflict. Conflict. They were the fighters. A modern day equivalent would be they were anarchists. They saw that we need to overthrow the Roman Empire and that's how the kingdom of God is going to break through. Kingdom through conflict. If they were to address the affordable housing crisis, they would do it through force, most likely, right? They might be along the people that are setting up a guillotine in front of Jeff Bezos' house or the people storming the Capitol. They are going to take it by force. Kingdom through conflict. The zealots. The second group are the Pharisees. They want to see the kingdom come through character. Character, good, moral, upright standing. Maybe a modern day equivalent would be the movement called the moral majority. 
the moral majority, that we need to get our morality in line and in check, and that's what's going to bring the kingdom to break from heaven to earth. They would address the affordable housing crisis, maybe looking less at the external factors that are at play in our cities and more at the internal factors, about people's individual responsibility and how, in a sense, they should get their lives in line so that they might even have the opportunity to create housing and a better life for themselves kingdom through character. The Sadducees, they were really interesting. The Sadducees saw the kingdom coming through compromise. Compromise. They worked with the Romans and they, they kind of had a quid pro quo approach where, hey, we'll offer you something if you give us something in return. Maybe a modern day equivalent would be like the lobbyist. Someone who's trying to get something in return for something else. They might approach the affordable housing crisis in today's world by saying, hey, if you offer affordable housing as a city, we'll give you some kind of incentive to do that. Maybe a tax incentive to kind of dangle that in front of you. Or you do this for us and we'll do this for you. Kingdom through compromise or collusion. And then lastly, the Essenes. These were, those were the guys out in the desert. John the Baptist was an Essene. They saw the kingdom coming through a contrast society, a counter society. They, they said the kingdom's going to come, but we need to go out into the desert, into the wilderness, and wait for it out there. We're going to create this contrast society out here away from everything else. A modern day equivalent might be the Amish. The Amish are trying to create this contrast society away from the structures and systems that are in place. They might solve the affordable housing crisis by saying we need to go back to some form of communal living, get a big piece of land somewhere and begin to share our property and possessions and create this contrast society in light of the systems and structures that we're in. Four groups, the Zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. You're going to see all four in the Gospel accounts. Jesus even has a Zealot as a disciple, which is amazing. I want you to see these four because it's going to shape how you read the Gospel stories that are to come, especially today even with the baptism and the wilderness journey. And see how Jesus offers a fifth way. A fifth way. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to the people around you. I'd love for you to share with them... Which of those four groups do you find yourself most identifying with? The Zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the Essenes as you approach the world and see the kingdom break through. Ready, set, go. All right, I'm hearing some really good conversation as you think about if you're a Sadducee, a Pharisee, an Essene, or a Zealot, and how you approach the world and solve the world's problems and see the kingdom Breakthrough. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. We're going to read Jesus' baptism and wilderness together. Matthew 4 separates, the chapter header separates the two stories. But those chapter headers, headers were probably added a thousand years after the Bible and the manuscript was written. And so we're going to read the story together because I think it makes more sense to see Jesus' baptism and wilderness journey hand in hand. And as we go, I'm going to show you how maybe the four different approaches might be seeing this story and then see what Jesus does with it, at least from the Father's words. Matthew 3, verse 13. Along the way, I'll stop and give us some insights. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, like I said earlier, John the Baptist was most likely kind of in that Essene category. He was out in the wilderness calling people to repent with a baptism of water, preparing them for one day the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was eating bugs. Interesting guy, right? They're out in the Jordan. The Jordan was a place where they crossed into the promised land for the very first time. He's trying to call them back to this ancient history. 
If you're in a scene in this moment, you're probably cheering in excitement that Jesus is with us. He's coming out to the Jordan. He's on our team. Let's continue reading. Verse 14. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount that you read this week, it said Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If you hear this phrase, fulfill all righteousness, man, if you're a Pharisee, you're starting to believe Jesus is on your team. Kingdom is going to come through character. Jesus is going to fulfill all righteousness with this baptism by John. It says, then John consented. Verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So the Father's voice comes from heaven, and he hears these words. It's actually two references to Psalm 2. And Isaiah 42, two promises from the Old Testament. In Psalm 2, if you've you got to go read it later. It's a violent psalm. This is my son, comes from Psalm 2. And it gives language like the king, the Messiah is going to come and is going to uh, d- uh, rule with a rod of iron and dash the nations like a piece of pottery. If you're the zealots, you're like, yes, this is the king that we were waiting for. But then it begins to twist and flip because the second passage is Isaiah 42, which is a reference to the suffering servant, the servant imagery that's all throughout Isaiah. This king that was to come, but in Isaiah 52 it says, was going to suffer and be wounded from our transgressions. You might wonder where the Sadducees are in all of this. Well, in the scene earlier, they're just kind of watching, colluding, figuring out how they're going to work with this Jesus guy, as you'll see throughout the rest of the Gospels. But notice here with Isaiah 42, it's a reference to the servant. Jesus upends their picture of this conquering king or a king that would just have the kingdom come through character or just the king that's going to come out to the wilderness like the Essenes, but rather he is the suffering servant king. A king like they've never seen before. He offers this fifth way. And for the rest of the gospel accounts, you're going to see this encounter with the servant king. It's going to lead us eventually to the cross that flips all of these categories upside down. The fifth way. Let's continue reading. It says, after he comes out of the water of baptism... Notice it says, then Jesus in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The wilderness. If you're an ancient Israelite and you're hearing this story unfold, I want you to begin to see the parallels between Jesus and Israel's story. As Israel came out of the waters of the Red Sea and crossed into the new land, across the Red Sea, they went into the wilderness for 40 years. Here Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 years days. Verse 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. We'll get back to that. I think that's really interesting. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. 
Notice this, Satan is quoting scripture back to Jesus. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. These verses here from verse kind of 4 or 3 to 11 are often used as an instruction manual of how to fight temptation. And I think that's really helpful maybe as a secondary reading. But maybe more what it's trying to parallel here, and some scholars would point this out, is a parallel between the temptation of Jesus with the temptation not only of Israel, but with Adam and Eve. Notice even Satan how he's beginning to try to twist words like the serpent did in the garden to try to get and convince Eve that God wasn't as good as he says he is. Do you see the parallels happening here between Israel and Jesus, between the story so far and what Jesus is doing? Here's the question I want you to do with some people, or answer with some people around you. Why do you think Matthew is spending so much time trying to identify Jesus with the story of Israel? What's his, what's his purpose for that? Why does that play into his storytelling? Ready, set, go. What do you guys think? I'd love to hear from maybe one or two of you. Why is Matthew trying to parallel the life of Jesus with the life of Israel. Why do you think he's doing that? What's his purpose? Yeah, Michael. Say it again. Yeah, yeah. So he came to deal with Israel first, to address Israel first. Really good, Michael, yeah. Anyone else? Yes, Klopak. Oh my goodness, this is going to mess up the whole sermon. Last, last week you were the one that actually helped lead me into the next point. I was hoping that was going to happen again this week, but it's okay. Our friendship will... will... Hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, with the temptation particularly, what I'm trying to point out is just really just that general pattern of how Israel was tempted in the wilderness and they succumbed to the temptation, right? Um, even here, what Jesus is referencing is from the passage of Deuteronomy, which is like the second giving of God's law uh, to the people as they're prepared. The next generation was prepared to take the promised land. So I'm just trying to parallel this temptation generally of Jesus in the wilderness, much like Israel was in the wilderness and tempted and fell into sin. But yet here, Jesus offers an alternative. He's victorious over the tempter, unlike Israel. So just in general, maybe not a, as, you're maybe trying to get more specific than I'm trying to get. And now you lead me to my next point. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate that. Yes, I want you guys to see, if you didn't hear what Ryan said, that Jesus is fulfilling the role that Israel was supposed to play all along. Remember back last week, if you remember the genealogy, if you're with us, Genesis 12, 3, through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. Abraham became the nation of Israel. Israel was supposed to be God's special people, not for themselves, but for the sake of others. But they failed over and over and over again. And yet here, Jesus doesn't succumb to temptation like Israel did. 
He's victorious over it. And now he's fulfilling what Israel was always supposed to do, to be a light to the nations. As Chris Hamilton said over here, to be a remedy to the world's problems and brokenness. That's what Jesus is doing, as we see in his baptism and his wilderness. Let me spend the next, the last five to ten minutes we have together giving you some implications of what this baptism of Jesus and the wilderness journey has to do with you and with me. That's really great about Jesus and what he's doing, but what does that have to do with you and with me? Let's focus first on Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism. Um, Curtis Hayden, I wish he was here today. Uh, Curtis Hayden, who's part of our church, Curtis and Jordan. Curtis uh, manages a Starbucks off of Baseline and the I-10. There's an In-N-Out over there now. If you're going to South Mountain, you've probably driven by it at some point off of Baseline. But I want you to imagine for a moment that Curtis uh, offered you a job. You didn't have to interview. He just offered it to you. And he said, hey, I want you to show up next week on Monday morning at 5 a.m. like Brittany Ide was doing for her Starbucks job, maybe even earlier than that. Sorry, Brittany, probably 2.30 a.m. But let's just 5 a.m. because that's better time. 5 a.m., you show up, you have your nice green apron on. You are a Starbucks barista. The moment you walk through that door, you'll be treated as one. Before you've ever pulled a single shot, before you've ever made a single drink, your identity has fundamentally changed. You've been given the apron. You're representative of something that you haven't done anything to deserve. I want you to hear this for Jesus and for you. Before Jesus did anything of significance, before he did a single miracle, before he did anything that was spectacular and awe-inspiring, he heard the words of the Father, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That Just like this status of a barista, before you do anything to earn that status, to live into that identity, you hear the words of the Father, now in Christ, This is my Son, this is my daughter. With him or whom I love, with him I am well pleased. How freeing is that in a world that says, prove it. Prove who you are. In the gospel, it's completely opposite. This is who you are, now live like it. This fall, as you go into mission, your neighborhoods, your workplaces, with coworkers, with as parents, whatever you're doing, like how freeing is it to start from the place if you have nothing to prove, You have no one to impress. You have nothing to hide because the words of the Father are spoken not only to Jesus, but now to you that those who are in Christ Jesus now hear that you are my son, my daughter, whom I love. With him, with her, I am well pleased. My hope for us as a congregation, if we were to live into that identity, it would free us to be so bold and confident to all the places God has called us this fall because we have nothing to prove and no one to impress. That's Jesus' baptism. Now to his wilderness. There's this book I've mentioned many times. It's, it's been so formative for me, but it's by a guy named Viktor Frankl. And it's Man's Search for Meaning. He was a concentration camp survivor in World War II. And he tried out his theory or experimenting with his theory of, of therapy in the concentration camps and then further. It was called logotherapy, meaning therapy. He tells a story in the book, though, I think is so fascinating. He says he worked with a client, uh, a gentleman who had extreme sleep insomnia, that every night he would be afraid to fall asleep. He would lay in bed for hours and hours and hours. 
He would do anything to try to avoid going to sleep or to try to get around it in some way. He would avoid it at all, all costs because he dreaded nighttime knowing that he was going to be awake for hours and hours and hours. Frankel's simple remedy with his theory was instead of trying to go around it or to avoid it, was to go straight towards it and through it. He said, hey, tonight when you go home, instead of trying to avoid going to sleep, I want you to stay up as long as you possibly can. To make it your mission tonight, to go straight towards it and say, I am not falling asleep tonight. The guy gets home, he faces it head on, and immediately he falls asleep. There's a lot of different things we could take from the story, but I want, what I want to connect it to with the story of Jesus' wilderness and temptation is it says the Spirit led him into the wilderness, and Jesus didn't try to avoid or go around it. He went straight through it. He faced it. He faced it. What's the wilderness right now in your life that you're trying to avoid or go around in some way? That you're trying to find a shortcut, find a way to get out of it, but the invitation of Jesus as the model of what he's given us is actually to go through it. To go through it. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. The beauty of our story is that Jesus not only has conquered the wilderness, but he goes with us now as we face our many trials and sufferings. The ways we're tested and tempted, Jesus comes with us as the good shepherd. I need you to hear this because I know many of you are in this place. This is a quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this, Jesus, or God, often whispers in our pleasure, but he shouts in our pain. He whispers in our pleasure, but he shouts in our pain in our pain. He shouts in our pain. I want to lead us to the communion table to respond to both the identity you've been given by Jesus and his invitation to you to go not around or to avoid it, but to go through it. But I want to leave you with this one word from the story as the Williams are going to serve us communion today. It's the word hungry. Jesus was hungry. We spend a lot of time focusing on Jesus' divinity and his status as God in the Gospels. But notice here, it says Jesus was hungry. He was human like you and me. He had our same aches and longings and frustrations and desires. He was hungry. He was hungry. The beauty of this story is that because Jesus was hungry, he's able now, it says in Hebrews, as our great high priest to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And so as we try to live into our identity as God's people, that our identity is secure, that we have no one to prove, nothing to prove, no one to impress, as we face the wilderness, whatever it looks like in your life, that not to, go avo to avoid it or go around it, but to go through it, would you start here with the communion table, knowing that your Lord and Savior was hungry, and because He was hungry, He's able to sympathize with you in your weakness. And your first step to respond is in your own hunger and your own aches and longings to come and feed on Him, to take His body and His blood and to receive from Him, knowing that this table represents your new identity you've been given, that you are the beloved child, son and daughter of God, and that wherever you go this week, in whatever wilderness you have to face in the weeks, the months, and the years to come, 
that your good shepherd goes with you because he's defeated sin and death. He's offered you forgiveness. And not only that, he's offered you companionship because he's not only the Lord of all, but he's the compassionate friend. So would you come to the table and receive from the Lord? And would you stand as we're about to do that? And let me recite our words we say every week. It says this from 1 Corinthians. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And like we do each week, would you recite these words? They're on your handout if you need them. They're simple, three simple phrases, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let's do it together. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Come and eat. Bring your hunger to the table.